Good evening, everyone. My name's Ed. I'm one of the pastors here at our church, and uh, hopefully you've been journeying with us these last seven weeks as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, a, uh, an Old Testament book about God's people Israel, uh, when they came back into their land that they'd been taken out of in exile in 445 BC, we called the series Restore and Revive. Uh, we did it because we've seen as we've been journeying through thus far that uh, what's been happening is that God's people needed to restore the walls of the city. But something even deeper needed to happen for God's people. They needed their hearts to be revived. They needed their hope to be revived. They needed their identity as the people of God to be revived. And so we're entering into this period of revival in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, now, last week we saw that God's people got together and they got out the instrument of revival. Uh, they got out the Word of God, and uh, and they they held this fest. They they were holding festivals and and they've held three weeks of festivals. And you know, as the Word of God does when you read it with an open heart, what it began to do was that for the first time, God's people started seeing God clearly. They saw that He was a, a good God, a good Creator a good provider, a good sustainer, a good protector. And then they also began to see themselves clearly for the first time. And they saw that in the story of the nation of Israel, well, they saw their own lives and the patterns of, of rebelling against God's goodness, of falling into sin, of, of failing to be the people that God had called them to be. And so today, as we come to our Bible reading, uh, we actually arrive at uh, three weeks into this period, the seventh month of festivals and celebrating and reading the Word of God. And uh, we're on the 24th day, and, uh, and a, a national sorry day has been declared, a day when the Prime Minister's not going to get up and say sorry. No, all the people are going to stand up and say sorry to God for not being the people that they should have been. Uh, they're wearing mourner's clothes, sackcloth, ashes. The, the Levites, the, the ministers are leading them in prayer. And what we're going to see is that they're going to pray for revival. And today is a day in Nehemiah of revival and recommitment. Next week, we're going to look at the recommitment. Today, we're looking at the, at the repentance required for revival. And we're going to think about what sort of things do you pray for when you want to pray that God would revive his people, that God would revive your heart, that God would revive his church, so open up your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to read the beginning of this prayer about reviving the people of God. I'm going to invite Bron to come forward, and she's going to bring us that reading. Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're starting in the second half of verse 5 on page 419. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. 
You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry in the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. This is the word of the Lord. So Israel looked around, and behind the newly erected walls that stood all around them were enemies on every side. Inside the city, the houses were barely inhabitable. Israel was not the people that it was meant to be. It was, Jerusalem was not the place that they'd hoped it could be. And then they'd been picking up the Bible for the last three weeks, and they read it. And in their history, they realized they certainly weren't the people God expected them. Perhaps the same might be true as you look at the church. You might look at God's church and think, declining numbers. You might think it's plagued by internal divisions, struggling to meet their offertories, struggling to connect with a world around it, failing to act in social justice. And you might think, we are not the people that we want to be. And then you read the Bible and you read about how God's people shared and had everything in common, how they served and worshipped the Lord daily, and think, we just don't feel like the people that God expects us to be. And it might even be true, that similar cycle in your own life. You might just look at yourself in the mirror and think, I'm not the man or the woman that God wants me to be, nor the person I expected. Well, what do you do in those times? What do you pray? Nehemiah 9 is a gift for us, isn't it? It's a gift for you and for me to know what to pray, how to come to God and ask him to revive us, 
to revive our hearts and revive our souls. Nehemiah 9 says, don't look at the issues. Don't try and sort out the issues. Sort out your heart. Because with a revived heart, God can deal with the issues. God can look after those enemies. God can pave forward the path before you. Nehemiah 9 tells us uh, that repentance is the first step towards revival. And revival rests on the mercy of God. What we've got in front of us, we Bron didn't read it all, but it's the fullest summary of the Old Testament that's recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, it's a disturbing read because what it reads as is just this ongoing downward spiral of God being good to Israel. Israel rejecting God's goodness, sinning, and then God being merciful and delivering his people. And six times over, that pattern repeats in this history of God's people. So let's journey with, uh, with the nation of Israel on this 24th day of the seventh month and think about their prayer and what we can learn uh, about how we could pray for revival in our own times. The first thing and the first step we want to recognize in praying for revival is a recognition of God's goodness. When we see and taste amazing food, we, we praise it, don't we? We taste a delicious dinner and we say, oh, that was just incredible. You know, We watch an amazing view and we turn to people who are looking at the same view and say, look at that, amazing. And the Levites say, Israel, look at your God. He has been incredibly good. Verse 5 of chapter 9 says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who's from everlasting to everlasting. And then they rattle off a number of reasons why God has been so good and why he's worthy of our love, our trust, our dependence. Let me, let me go through some of those with you. First, God's goodness is shown as creator. And creator, he's worthy of our worship. Verse 6 tells us that you alone, Lord, made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it. That includes you and me. We are creatures given life and sustained in our life by our loving and creative creator. And what is it that the creator asks of you and me? Well, verse 6 ends by telling us, You give life to everything, Lord, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Worship is what your creator wants from you, his creature. God is good because his covenant keeper he, he's worthy of our friendship. Uh, remarkably, the God who made the highest heavens, the God of the infinite, wants to be friends with individuals. So he chose this little nomad named Abraham, and he wanted to be his friend. Verse 8 tells us, You found Abraham's heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land. That's what our God is like. Everything is his, but he wants friendship. Friendship with Abraham, friendship with Abraham's descendants, friendship with you. And as the one who, who wants that friendship, he wants relationship. He's worthy of relationship. He doesn't want your religion. He wants a friendship with you. God's goodness is expressed in, uh, as, uh, as deliverer, that he is very worthy of our trust. So the descendants of Abraham, true to God's promise, they multiply, they became this vast group of people uh, living in the nation of Israel uh, of Egypt, and they fell into great distress. And in their distress, they cried out to God, and verse 9 tells us that God saw their suffering, and he heard their cry at the Red Sea. 
and, and God loves and treasures his people and he comes to the table with mighty acts of deliverance. You probably know of the 10 plagues of, of the nation uh, of, of Egypt that God sent on the Egyptians. Well, for Nehemiah and his friends who were in this rundown city of Jerusalem, what a comfort for them to know that the God that they worshipped was able to rescue his people, a million Israelites, out of this nation Israel with 10 plagues that decimated the people around them and protected his own. And then he led them through the Red Sea. And in this one act, he parted a sea and delivered his people and brought that sea down on their pursuers. God of heaven is good and can deliver and rescue his people. He's very worthy of our trust. God's goodness was also shown to Israel in that as lawgiver, he was worthy of their obedience. When you think of God as a lawgiver, I wonder what thoughts conjure up in your mind, you know. Rigid, restraining, divine policeman. Well, how did Israel see it? Verse 13, second sentence, You gave Israel your regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commands that are good. Like, for example, uh, the Holy Sabbath of verse 14. Before the days of trade unions and, and fair work conditions, there was God like a good boss, giving his people a day off every week, commanding that they rested, commanding that they worshipped and were rejuvenated. There was God giving good commands for the good of his people. And God's goodness was also shown that as provider, he was always worthy of their faith. Israel wandered through the wilderness, and you might know the story of how each morning they discovered manna on the ground, little seeds that they could turn into, into bread. Well, a lot of us sort of think, you know, maybe God doesn't act like that anymore. Uh, a lot of us don't know that experience of living hand to mouth. Uh, I've got a friend who, I remember, you know, used to think, well, God only did this, you know, 4,000 years ago in the Exodus. But that was until the day when he found himself literally with no bread on the table. The man has seven kids, and he opened the door, and there was a loaf of bread on the front step. God knows your needs. I'm sure you could turn to one another and share times that God has provided a, an envelope in the mail with some money to meet your empty account, uh, a friend's invite to dinner, uh, those kind of ways that God just provides each and every day and continues to do so because he's good and he's worthy of our faith. So how would you expect a people who've been so intentionally loved by God, their creator, God, their provider, God, their deliverer, their sustainer, their protector? How would you expect when, when he asked them just to lean into him a little more, to, to trust him with the next step of faith? He, he invited them to walk into the promised land and, and, and conquer this land that he promised to deliver them. Well, this brings us to our second step in praying for revival, and that is we've got to repent of our sins because this precious situation that Israel found themselves in, well, it revealed what was going on in their hearts. We often find that when we, we get into difficult situations, we say things like, oh, I'm sorry that I said those hard words to you. I'm sorry that I offended you, but you know, dot, 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 the pressure was on, the, the situation was tense. I'm sorry I abandoned you, but there was so much relational friction. 
Well, the Bible doesn't give us that kind of excuse. It says, no, when the pressure's on, that reveals the real you. Uh, so what did the, real, the pressure reveal about the real Israel? Uh, verse 16 tells us, when the pressure came on, they, our ancestors, became arrogant, presuming to know better than God. They became stiff-necked, like a, a, a cow in a, in a cow yard. So I don't know if you've ever witnessed that a cow, when it decides that it's not going to turn around, could face headlong into a, a fence and a, and a gate when an open field is behind them and there's almost nothing you can do to turn them around. And that's how Israel became to the Lord their God. And they, they closed their ears to him. Verse, 16, uh, verse 17 goes on. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that God had performed among them. Sure, people have said this to you, and you've been talking to them about having faith in Jesus. They say something like, You know, if I saw a miracle, then I'd really believe what you believe. And well, here, here's evidence that one million Israelites saw more miracles than you can count on all your fingers and all your toes, and still they refused to believe that God could do what He promised. They shut their ears to God, they hardened their hearts to Him. Over the page, verse 26 actually tells us the sort of extents that they went to to stop God speaking to them. Verse 26 tells us they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And then their sin did what sin so often does. It made them dumb. Just stupid. Sin so often does this, doesn't it? Um, for Israel, they decided maybe we'd be better back in Egypt. They, uh, verse 17 tells us they became stiff-necked and in their rebellion, second sentence, they appointed a leader to go back to Egypt. They thought maybe back in that land where our adults were enslaved and our children were murdered, that's where we'll find true freedom. And so they turned around and they planned to start heading back. And sin so often does that, doesn't it? It always promises you freedom. It promises you deliverance. And what, is it, what does it deliver? Slavery. Think of the gambler. The gambler has the promise of, of, of the great win whilst the gambling robs them of the money for their livelihood. Uh, the alcoholic, they turn to the bottle to escape the realities of life only to wake up the next morning with the same realities and a bigger headache. The relationship that we run to, that we know that we shouldn't go to, because we, we, we hope, we long that it will satisfy that deep sense of isolation and loneliness. We hope for companionship, and then we get there, and we find ourselves more isolated, more alone, more conflicted. Well, sin only ever delivers slavery. And that's what it did for Israel. The Bible tells us that we, just like these Israelites that we've gone through, well, we too have accumulated a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of rebellion against God. None of us have responded to his goodness as we should. All of us shut our ears, close off our hearts, turn the other way to him. And though you might be physically healthy, though you might be experiencing lovely material comforts at the moment, the Bible says that each and every person is spiritually seriously ill. And there's only one antidote to our illness, 
And that's our third part of a prayer of revival is the mercy of God. The only antidote for a sinner's heart is the mercy of God. So receive the mercy of God. The pressure that came on Israel revealed their true hearts. What's the pressure of their rebellion against God going to reveal about him? Well, we find out in the end of verse 17. Israel rebelled. They planned to go back to Egypt, starting at the sentence with but. But you, God, are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. To some, those words might sound quite familiar. Those words are the words of God's name. When Israel committed one of the most terrible sins of their entire history, a sin recorded in verse 18 when they made a calf for themselves, and they said of this calf, Here, Israel, this is your God. This is the one who brought you out of Egypt, who, who delivered you with a mighty hand. They committed awful blasphemies, not using God's name as a swear word. No, they said of this silly, dumb, immovable cow, they said, this is your God. They attributed the works and wonders of God to a golden statue that couldn't hear, couldn't talk, couldn't help, couldn't, couldn't deliver them. Well, we have all been there, haven't we? We have all turned our backs on God, but we all desperately need God to be what he was for Israel in that time. They had rebelled against him, and he said, no, this is who I am. I am a forgiving God. I am gracious. I am compassionate. I'm slow to anger and abounding in love. And the cycle is repeated in this prayer six times over. Six times over, God's goodness is shown, Israel sins, and then God shows mercy. And there's a refrain that comes through. It's it's the refrain of, in your great mercy, in your great compassion, you delivered, you rescued, you helped, you healed, you restored. And that is our God. That is our God. The the stories keep coming. You probably know of them. The stories of the judges. Well, uh, God delivered his people into the promised land and they, they got rest and then they forgot God. And so God raised up judges like Samson and, and Deborah and Gideon. And, and every time they were delivered from their enemies, they forgot God again and relaxed their moral standards. So God raised up prophets and they spoke to God's people. But, but God's people began to harden their hearts to God and, and block out the voices of these prophets. And so the cycle continued until eventually God sent the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to take his people out of the land and to really humble them. And that brings Israel to the present, to Nehemiah's day, 445 BC, and they sum all their history up in these words in verse 33. Have a read with me, verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained faithful You have remained righteous, sorry. Uh, You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Six times this pattern goes on. God's goodness, Israel's sin, God's mercy. And here they are a seventh time, sitting in a city that doesn't look like it should be, knowing they're not the people that they want to be, and they pray, God, revive us. Revive us in you this day. Do what you've done six times over. Do it a seventh. 
and they finish the prayer down the bottom of verse 37. We are in great distress. They reach out to God and they fall upon the mercy of God. I wonder if you know that pattern in your own life. God's goodness to you. A loving creator, powerful deliverer, a covenantally committed friend, a generous provider, sustainer. But your sin, you and I hardening our hearts, closing our ears, forgetting his goodness, turning aside to our own ways. Well, what we need, what Israel needed, we need the mercy of God. And what Nehemiah 9 teaches us is that the path back to God, the way to come home to him, is not to get your stuff together. Israel didn't have their stuff together. They finish with, we're stuffed up. The way to come back to God is to bring him all your mess and to throw yourself on his mercy and ask him to revive you, to make you back into the people, the person that, you want, that he wants you to be. So friends, as you look around at God's church and you want to see revival, start doing business with your own heart. Look at God's goodness, confess your sin, receive his mercy. As you want revival in your own life, start with your own heart, recognize God's goodness, repent of your sin and receive his mercy. The way we take hold of God's mercy is simply to ask, and and that's what we're going to do now in a prayer of confession. We're going to come to God and we're going to confess that we've not been the people that we should have been. Then we're going to sing a song, uh, reflecting together, we'll just stay seated, reflecting together about God's great mercy. And then I want to come back and just quickly just assure you how you can know that God's mercy is assured for you. Let's pray this prayer of confession together with the words that come up on the screen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation. Amen.
stone house. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood beneath the debt we could never afford. How says they are many, his Israel's history continued, we know that the eighth cycle in that pattern was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was him who told us the story of the prodigal son, a story that reminds us that when we run back to God to receive his mercy, what we find is not an angry God, not a disappointed God, not a God who keeps a record of our wrongs, but a God who welcomes us with wide open and merciful arms. You know the story of the prodigal son. He, he left his father. He took his inheritance. He squandered his father's money in wild living. And then he came to his senses. He thought about the goodness of his father. And he repented of his sin. I've sinned against heaven and against earth. And he returned home. And when he came home, what he found was a father who ran out to him and wrapped his merciful arms around his neck. And if you want to come home to God, if you want to return and receive more mercy from him, you will find your father coming out to you, running out to you and wrapping his arms around you. And in that embrace of God, he wants to take away all the shame of your wrongdoing. He wants to take away all the guilt, all all the, the broken promises and the hurt and the pain. He'll swallow them all up himself in the mercy that he showed when Jesus died on the cross in our place. And we've, we've just sung about that. And then he wants to look you in the eyes and he says these words that the father said to the prodigal son. He says, welcome home, child. You once were lost, but now you're found. I thought you were dead, but you're alive again. Come home to me and come and celebrate. And so friends, if you want to Come home to God. If you want to return and receive more mercy from the living God, if you want to see God's people revived, well, let's pray a prayer together in closing. And let's pray that God would revive and restore us as we pray like the Israelites prayed. Let's pray and I'll lead us. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good. You have given us life delivered us, sustained us, provided for us, and protected us. We, like Israel, have sinned against you, hardened our hearts, blocked our ears, stiffened our necks, 
we have broken your heart. God, as you've done eight times before, do once more in our day. God of mercy, have mercy on us. God, revive us, revive our hearts, revive your church so that we might be the distinct people of God that Jesus Christ died for us to be. Lord God, we pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen.